You're listening to Ember Weekend, your weekend recap of all things Ember. This is episode 37. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson, and we're here to keep you in the Ember Run Loop. We're broadcasting from Hashrocket HQ, and we're here with special guest Katie Gangler. So Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, So I'm a developer, and I live with my two cats and my husband, Bill, in New Jersey. And he's also a developer. And this year I started a small consulting company called Code All Day with a partner, Michelle. And I've been doing Ember for a few years. I'm also behind Ember Observer and a couple of add-ons. And before that, I was the CTO of a small financial uh, startup in New York City. Wow, that's cool. that's great. Did, do you uh, do you like uh, coding all day, or do you, would you rather be a CTO? <laughs> uh, I like coding all day. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. I, I I was about to say you know Chase's uh, Chase's Twitter handle and and online presence is code zero one zero zero fun which is code for fun so code all day code for fun it's great yeah <laughs> so uh, how did you get started in Ember? Uh, it was a few years ago and I was on a development team and I was the only person not really afraid of JavaScript and so I ended up doing a lot of it and I had ended up creating my own framework as a lot of people did. And when Ember uh, evolved out of Sprout Core 2, I thought it would be a good idea to bring it in on a new project we had so that I didn't have to be the only one that could understand what was going on in the JavaScript and so that people had some uh, conventions to look to on the team. Uh, And that worked out pretty well for the project, though I think at this point that project is probably still running. If it's still running, it's on 098 um, and probably has not been upgraded or touched since. That sounds like fun. Uh, you know, the best code is the code you don't have to t- you don't have to touch after you write it, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like if yeah. it's still working, it's good. <laughs> they yeah. might have to touch it; they just probably can't upgrade it. Oh, okay, that's a little bit less enjoyable. <laughs> well, I, w- I will say that this 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 kind of story I hear this a lot, and this actually happened to me early on, like right around that same transition of Sprout Core to Ember uh, with a project. And I was told, you know, we're starting up a new project. Um, we think it's going to be you know front end heavy. And so I was tasked with like looking at Backbone, and I think it was Knockout at the time also, and Ember. And sadly, we we uh, well, I didn't, but the the higher ups chose Backbone, uh, and that that project ended up going terribly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> I hear I hear this all the time, and everybody who chose Ember uh, ends up saying, oh yeah, the project went pretty well. And then I'm just like, oh man, I hate so you. <laughs> so that particular project was at a couple other uh, interesting gotchas. So we had to incorporate a widget from another team that was developed. Like it was a, some sort of map component, I think. Um, and they developed it using uh, Backbone. And so we get to the end of the project and we're putting them together, which is maybe not the best uh, <laughs> development techniques. And then we go, <laughs> we all of a sudden go, you used Ember? You used Backbone? <laughs> Let's find out if they work. Right, it's like you used Metric, you used Imperial? Yeah, they should fit together. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> right. It's perfect. But this is this is definitely the this is the reasoning behind components. Like I, I really love like uh, Jay Phelps's you know all his talks on on how components should kind of work together and and hopefully in the future we won't have to deal with these kind of situations. Yeah, it did actually end up working, so that was something. Uh, yeah, and wow, that could have been so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so not being afraid of JavaScript was that because you come from a JavaScript background, or is it because you just were more willing to kind of dive in than your than your peers at the time? Um, I did have some JavaScript experience when I started on that. I was a few years into that team at that time, but when I started on that team, I was one of the few people that had had JavaScript experience as well as Ruby experience. And so a lot of people were just intimidated by the prospect of breaking cross browsers and 
we were on a team where we were supporting IE6, and so there were a lot of little uh, nuances and maybe something that took a lot of patience to deal with. Right. Um, and so right. I was just more amenable to that, I don't know, maybe a little masochistic. <laughs> maybe. So how has uh, contracting or consulting changed uh, by moving predominantly from a back-end Rails uh, UI uh, to more of a front-end JavaScript-heavy uh, framework like Ember? Uh, so I can't really answer that because I've never done consulting that was predominantly one or the other. Uh, everything I've done has been both back-end and front-end work. Um, so I typically use Ruby on Rails on the back-end and JavaScript and Ember when possible on the front-end. When you, when you talk about using Rails as the back-end and Ember as the front-end, um, how do you uh, how do you like enjoy the interaction between just having a Rails backend and an Ember frontend and like the testing story and the integration and deployment and stuff? Has it been like a pleasurable experience by and large? Yeah, it's not been bad at all. I've never really run into too much of a, a headache. Uh, Active model serializers for all of its churn has worked pretty uh, reliably if you stick on certain versions of it. And I'm excited for when JSON API becomes uh, more viable in the Rails world. I know there are a couple of gems Absolutely. to do it, but it's been a little iffy. Yeah, I'm, I've been I've been like really trying personally just to figure out JSON API. It feels so verbose. It's like there's a lot of there's a lot uh, a lot to do there. A lot of ground to be covered still. Yeah, one of the things I, I feel about JSON API though is that. Um... Most of the people who look at it and, and and we've heard you know these these arguments like wow it's it's so like verbose or it's I don't like how it does X Y or Z, um, but the idea of JSON API to me is that you just never have to look at it again. You have a serializer you know on the front end and back end, and they kind of just work seamlessly because they all match some version of JSON API, and you don't touch it. Um, it's human readable. If you have to, you can dig into it, but it's not a data structure you're going to have to manually build anymore. Yeah. So what type of what type of uh, contracting does Code All Day typically do? Is it mostly rescues or uh, advising or new code? Um, so we've mostly done new code, but by mostly I have to uh, uh, caution that with that we've only started about a year ago. It's just me and Michelle. Um, and so I can talk about what we've typically done for the last year, but we also have about 18 years of experience de doing development and consultant between us. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. So we have some history there as well. Um, so we've done a lot of new applications and features um, and a little bit of rescues of projects. And rescue is a variety of project, variety of types of projects, some where they just need a project just hasn't been going how they want it to go. And they need somebody to take leadership of it and just bring it bring it along to the, the finish finish point. Um, or it could be a legacy app that just needs some way to move forward. We had one particular legacy app this year that really uh, was quite painful to deal with, but we managed to uh, get in on modern versions of everything that every all the dependencies it was using, and it's now getting uh, having new development. That sounds really fun. Well, rescue projects don't sound fun, but yeah, <laughs> um, we're maybe have a little bit more tolerance for them than common than is common, but. Uh, because we've worked with uh, Rails for so long that most of the rescue projects are Rails. Um, we've worked with Rails so long, so we can just go and be like, oh, we remember this version. <laughs> we know what this is doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do you find uh, with the rescues, uh, the Rails rescues specifically, they're using Ember Rails more often? They're using like some sort of act like Ember CLI kind of thing? or. Um, so I haven't come across a rescue that's been using Ember yet. Okay, okay. 
So do you do you try to migrate rescues to that way, or do you just kind of work in the existing system? It really depends on the application. Some applications, Ember just really doesn't make sense. So the one I was thinking of that was uh, the most horrifying Rails uh, was an e-commerce app, and it probably would not have made sense to use Ember in that instance. I think some e-commerce apps could have made sense, but it was a very traditional uh, thing that probably could have been using off-the-shelf software if it right. hadn't been a really custom domain. Um, and so, yeah, Ember uh, Rails, that's that's a different headache. We were, uh, At the startup I was at, we were on Ember Rails and switched to Ember CLI about a year ago. Mm-hmm. That uh, that that's about the same time you started consultancy, right? Was it that difficult? Uh, no, we we successfully got to Ember <laughs> CLI. That's cool. That's cool. Um, we were successfully on the Ember CLI a month or two before Michelle and I uh, left and started the consultancy. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so between rescues, new code, and like just general advising, which kind of domain do you prefer to work in? Uh, we absolutely prefer new code. Uh, I think most people would agree with that. Uh, Michelle and I really like <laughs> like creating a, a new application, and we like the feature design process. Uh, uh, we like advising as well, but it's very satisfying, but it's a lot harder. Uh, building yeah. a new app, just yeah. me and Michelle sit down, and we just start it, and it's you, you have something really great to look at just within a day or two. Absolutely, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that uh, the new code bug, Greenfield, the promise of, you know, new technologies and all this late and great and none of the technical debt so so appealing to to i don't know just me i, I think most developers at large would would agree with that yeah and you get to pick the technology so we can use ember when it's appropriate <laughs> even yeah. better yeah. we uh yeah. we just had like a kind of internal mini conference at our company and uh and somebody brought this up that they actually like doing brownfield because uh, typically the greenfield apps we do are startups and uh with brownfield you're doing more of an established company that knows more what they want and their expectations are actually more realistic than the, than the startups. And, uh, and the way they put it was, uh, you know, that green field, uh, is, is not green all the way through it. It's brown underneath the grass. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I thought that was a really good way of putting it. I guess it depends on who's, uh, charging with building the app. So we've done a couple <laughs> apps that haven't been for startups, but they've been for existing companies wanting to build an MVP for a potential new product. And so those are interesting. They seem to, they do seem to always know what they want, which is really uh, nice from a development standpoint. Yeah. Uh, so in your rescues, uh, how often do you see something like having having no tests or, or, or you know, just poor quality of the code? Um, so I wouldn't say necessarily poor quality of the code was too common, uh, but a lot of accidental complexity is what I see apps drowning under the most. Um, and I, if I were on a team and if I had been working with people over time, I would say that I would guess that it would be the junior to mid-level developers, probably more towards mid-level that are the most dangerous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel like there's this point in every Ruby developer where they all of a sudden think metaprogramming is the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. they start metaprogramming things. And those are the types of, <laughs> when you end up with classes that you just can't figure out what they're doing or can't search and make sure you have all the usages of it. And usually those are tested in a really brittle manner, I find. And that's what I find way more than no test is really brittle and a lot of the wrong tests, tests that are testing at the wrong level or are overly, are so complicated you can't pull them apart even more, uh, more so than the code. Um, and so they're just strangling apps and holding them down and preventing them from doing any, having any change because you 
either need to give up on your test suite and delete some tests, or you need to uh, try to fix them every single time you make a little change. And that could be very overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've heard uh, the metaprogramming, that metaprogramming hurdle is like metaprogramming is, is right only. It's kind of like Perl. Sorry, that's <laughs> that's a that's an unnecessary shot at Perl, but yeah. My husband um, has a Perl um, background. Oh, really? <laughs> well, there's a lot of similarities between Perl and Ruby, so I feel yeah. like the, I think he's happy to be doing Ruby now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. Um, so when you see those brittle tests and the and the problem space uh, in a in a project like that, how do you kind of help them move towards like less brittle tests? Is it a lot of unraveling the metaprogramming kind of stuff, or are, is there another path that you do like big dragnet testing and kind of work that way? Like, is there a path forward for getting from that state to a better state? It depends a lot on the client. Um, so if there's a team that's been maintaining this app or that will be maintaining this app, I find we need buy-in from that team uh, in order to support testing because I can write a great test suite for their application or get them a great uh, regression test suite. But if they're not going to keep it green, there's no point in having it. It's just going to be worthless. Um, but once we do have that buy-in and or if we're just starting on a, an application that doesn't have an existing team, we start with the what we consider the most bang for our, our buck is it a, uh, smoke tests, end-to-end uh, tests to cover as much of the application as possible, the critical paths. Um, so in any commerce site, checking out and paying for your, uh, your products would be the first path that I would cover. And so that at least gives you a little bit to make changes in those core areas without knowing you're completely breaking their products. <laughs> Yes, it's very important um, to do it that way. Otherwise, uh, if you wanted to just start building unit tests, they're not going to give you much value when the overall app could still be broken. Um, so unless we're explicitly tasked with doing so, we don't write a test suite in one shot because we find that few projects can stop development completely while a test suite is developed for them. Uh, though I kind of wish more places would task us specifically with doing that because I think in the long run, it really helps speed up their developers. It gives them that safety net that lets them make all the changes that are being requested without breaking the app date every day. Uh, okay, so uh, when you were approaching a new or even rescue project, what is your testing strategy, um, particularly in regard to like when there is uncharted territory, like you don't necessarily know the constraints of the system or you don't necessarily know how to implement a feature? Um, so when I don't know how to implement a feature, I usually do uh, spike a solution, uh, which I think a lot of people know, but is when you uh, try to do, try to just code it without doing any testing and just try to answer all the questions you have. And then at the end, you, you throw away that solution and redrive it with tests. And then when I drive something with tests, I prefer to uh, TDD um, and drive things from the outside in, starting with acceptance and going down to units. And I prefer to pair and ping pong to develop, uh, but I always don't, don't always get to do that. And that's when uh, one developer writes the test and the other developer does the minimal thing to make it passed. And the other goes back to the first developer and they write something else to make it the test fail. And the next person goes and writes more feature code to make it pass. Um, I find that a lot of fun and very effective way to get good tests. I don't know, it makes you think about the tests in a uh, a different way as they're they're in they're in interim states as you get to the end result test that you do want to be part of your uh, regression suite. Yeah, it also seems like when you when you test that way, um, you know, as you're writing the test, you're thinking in your head how you're going to make it pass, 
but uh, your pair doesn't know that. So they, they write what they think you mean. And, it, and sometimes it's like, oh, that test really wasn't clear enough because you didn't understand uh, what I thought needed to be done. It's, it's kind of a, a way to keep yourself from cheating on your, on your tests. Yeah. I also find I find a lot of questions about features and about uh, things that people may have assumed when they, they suggested features that they wanted that they didn't think about. So we end up with a lot of questions to bring back to the people developing the product or people who have uh, requested these requirements as we do ping pong uh, test driven development. Yeah. I really like ping pong uh, test TDD. Um, but I, I find that uh, sometimes like, uh, especially like the longer you work with a, a pair and you kind of get to know each other. Uh, I, I find that I end up writing tests that, uh, that are like, uh, for instance, like an add m method, it accepts two plus two and you're like add two, two, and then it should be four. And then my pair will be like, Oh, I'm going to return the integer four. So it's like, ends up being like really like very small changes until it's kind of like a kind of like a becomes a game and becomes a really enjoyable like back and forth like oh i'm going to do literally the smallest bit of work that i can do to make your test inadequate and then <laughs> go back and forth I yeah really i've done that, that too <laughs> <laughs> i think i've literally done the number four thing <laughs> <laughs> it's so great i just i love that it's 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 the my favorite part about uh ping pong pairing versus like uh pilot co-pilot it's interesting um Okay. Uh, so are you strict about testing? Like, do you, uh, is there any, uh, situations where you find yourself, um, maybe not, uh, testing uh, everything or is it like every single line of code has to be covered? Uh, I would say I'm not strict, uh, on the Ruby side, I do try to have good coverage. Uh, but I'm in the camp where you don't test private methods and, uh, there's a lot of dogma around testing, uh, but I, if something's causing, it's harder to write the test for it, then it's going to be to write the code. Like if, if it's one of those things where it's extremely hard to get a test around it, I will just stop. Um, I'm also one of those people that might indiscriminately delete flaky tests because they just don't have any value. If I'm going to spend hours and hours every other day trying to figure out why a test is breaking it's not it's not valuable anymore especially in ci and then you push it up and it's like nope not gonna work and then <laughs> you're like oh, it's oh, only oh, failing oh. there yeah right that's the best yeah the heisen bugs that happen in ci it's, it's better when it's only passing in ci like <laughs> like what happened the other day with uh with with one of our colleagues they uh they had some tests that were just passing in in production oh really i mean we're not just passing in production uh just passing in the ci oh that's that's really strange that's fun. That's so, scary. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely scary. Um, so I think we already kind of covered this, but uh, do you sometimes spike a solution and throw away? And and have you ever found yourself spiking a solution uh, and then kind of keeping that code? You're like, oh, I'll just write regression tests. Or is it is it like strict, I must throw out the spike? Uh, there's tons of temptation to keep the spike at the end. Um, I try to be good about it. I don't even know where that dogma in my head comes from. I'm going to have to look into that later. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do reference the spike pretty often, especially if I'm doing some, something uh, not even novel, but like harder on the UI and JavaScript, and you figure it out the API finally. I'm not going to try to struggle through that again. I'm going to reference my spike solution. Uh, for instance, I once made a, like, what you see is what you get templater and those types of things, especially. There's so much weird stuff around those APIs in the browser that trying to figure it out again would have been silly. 
So when you're doing your testing, uh, do you find yourself doing uh, uh, more unit tests, more acceptance tests, or, or now uh, you know, Ember integration tests? Uh, in Ember, I really prefer acceptance tests. I think I get the most value from them because they cover most of the app and drive the app similar to how a user would. Um, and I've been, that's been my opinion since starting with Ember testing. Uh, because the units I found, whenever I did write them, I would end up having to drastically change them or remove them whenever I refactored the app and refactored where routes were and added components and moved components around. Um, so I found the value of the acceptance tests were that they could stay the same as I did refactorings that were uh, just moving things around. So much of Ember is just wiring components and add-ons together. At least my, my experience lately with it has been that. And uh, so the acceptance tests cover those the, that wiring up. It doesn't really, uh, unit tests don't get that as well. Um, I do like the new integration test for components, for components that are reused though. You switched over to, to using some integration tests and, uh, and it just, it feels so nice to be able to like just isolate a component and say, um, in a really simple case, this works, but then, yeah, we tend to kind of skip over a lot of the unit tests for things like, uh, mostly like adapters and things because, uh, we seldom do any special things in adapters. Um, and then we just go straight to just acceptance tests and just write a ton of acceptance tests. Uh, especially with page objects now, everything is, is, is so nice to like, you know, describe exactly what you're seeing and, and makes everything um, much easier to change when like we get the new design or something. Definitely. So, uh, so w with regard to testing, like the back end and the front end, um, how do you deal with the air gap between, between the two, um, testing the API directly or, or some other solution? Uh, so I usually do test the API directly, uh, as well as try to cover that gap. So the API is usually well tested, the Ember app is usually well tested, and then to cover that gap I've tried a few different things. Um, over the last couple of years, uh, several different apps, I've seen all different ways to do this, or tried all different ways to do this, and so I think it's app dependent and maybe also timing dependent on what the community is like at the time. Um, so one thing I did recently was just cover uh, the gap between them with a capybara test that hit the whole uh, smoke test that just hit the whole thing. Uh, so maybe for a smaller app that that is enough. And then for a larger app, we had a, a technique where we were generating the API responses from the back end that would have come back and using those as the fixtures that Pretender use, used for one acceptance test suite. So we just have an acceptance test, Ember acceptance test suite that covered uh, a couple critical paths through the app and it was using uh, generated responses. So that's just making sure that the API hasn't changed in a way that would break uh, the applic Ember application. So what, what is your strategy for deploying Ember right now? Uh, I've been using Ember CLI deploy um, and uh, most recently I've used the lightning fast approach that Luke Melia first described at RailsConf a few years ago. And uh, it's been really nice because there was an add-on to use it on the Ember side and I found a nice gem that implemented it for the Rails side and there was very minimal work I had to do on my own other than adding Redis to our setup. Uh, for uh, Ember Observer is deployed, uh, it's just a file, it's just SCPing files to the server. <laughs> um, someday I'll upgrade that. Yeah, that, that's basically what we do with Ember Weekend now is we just um, deploy them to AWS in a static, you know, in, in a bucket. And that's how they're served. They're you know we're just using um, what is it uh, Route 53 to you know just serve EmberWeekend.com. 
So it, I, I don't think, I mean, that's kind of the, the point of Ember. It's, it's mostly static files. Most, I mean, other than the fact that you need some kind of routing behavior, um, you know, it, you could just serve it as a static file. Yeah. I think SP, SCPing files is a great way to deploy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's I mean, what Capistrano I, was for a long time. So. Uh, in regards to the, to the Redis part, um, do you actually use the, uh, the that feature where you can roll back changes or, or you know deploy to production and see the new change with with a with the key? Uh, so I personally haven't used the feature where you can see the uh, new uh, rollout with a key, uh, but I have used rolling back. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just we went we went to the, the other day. Um, we deployed something and, and immediately found out we needed to roll it back, and then. Um, it, it, one of our configurations was broke and we'd never tested rolling back and uh so we couldn't <laughs> so it was uh it was really funny uh we ended up having to to do some work to manually go into that redis database and and roll it back but, i actually uh, added uh added a command to uh we have a staging environment and a production environment on one particular client and added a command that would promote the currently used version from staging to production uh which i was surprised to find didn't exist already as some sort of add-on uh, that way we wouldn't have to rebuild it when we move to production because it was an app that's very sensitive to uh, downtime and bugs in production. Not right, that right, all, right. all aren't. <laughs> that's really interesting. Is that wrapped up uh, somewhere in an add-on or is that still local on that project? It's, it's local on that project. I made a lot of uh, short... It's a lot easier to build something that's specific to one project than it is to build something that's well generalized, especially about true. where Redis lives. <laughs> yeah. That's totally true. Um, oh, speaking of uh, of Ember Observer, um, what inspired you and uh, and Lewis and Phil to write Ember Observer? Um, was it driven by kind of a necessity, like an empty space, or? Um, I would say it was convenience. Uh, so Lou and Phil and I uh, have a number of random side projects. Uh, they've kind of been dropped this year in favor of Ember Observer. Uh, but at one weekend, I was working on one of those, and I was looking for, we were using Ember because it's a side project, we get to use what we want, and it even if it didn't make sense, <laughs> it's a, <laughs> it was a pretty static site that maybe didn't need Ember, um, but I was looking for an add-on that did uh, something like flash notices, and I know I had seen one released, but I think it had a clever name, not not with flash notice in, it, in the name, or I, at that point, I don't even know what I was looking for. Uh, but I realized that I was going through every add-on every time they were released and kind of cataloging them in my head. And I was annoyed I couldn't find all of the add-ons in one particular category. And so I uh, just told Phil and Lou and we started building that. And I've loved, uh, based a lot on Ruby Toolbox, uh, which is the Ruby community uh, has categorized a lot of gems and it has its own score as well. So a lot, a lot coming from that. Yeah, that's that's uh, exactly like I, I remember. Um, I remember hearing about Ember Observer and being like, "Oh, this is exactly like Ruby Toolbox." And then come to find out, it's inspired kind of um, partially by that. So that's great. I, I really I think that the first thing that people do now when they're looking for an add-on is just go to Ember Observer and check the score. Like I really enjoy how how well that scored. It's pretty cool. Cool. I'm glad. glad <laughs> oh, it's very it's it's super useful. Absolutely. Um, have there been any surprises uh, with Ember <laughs> Observer, like things that are like out of the left field? Uh, I found a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> uh, more generally, I'm surprised that people care a lot about the score. Uh, there almost weren't scores or badges. I think Matthew Beal suggested that to me right after I, re I think I gave him a preview of it before I released it. 
Um, another surprise is people are gaming the system, but I shouldn't be surprised when there's the score, which is kind of a gamification. So uh, they've realized that any test that's not the default gets them the testing point. And so there's some apps that add-ons that have barely different tests that sort of cover something, but probably don't really cover anything. And so they get that testing point um, and probably working to recalibrate that uh, in the future, hopefully trying to run coverage on all the add-ons instead and use that to influence that, uh, that point. That's, um, that's interesting. The gaming of the system. That's, that's really wild. <laughs> yeah. And people really cargo cult. I found a add-on with the README that had a static Travis image. Like it just it just pointed to a static green build badge <laughs> image. <laughs> I think that's the best I found so far. That is that is like legendary. That is so good. <laughs> I know it's it's pretty bad. I think I tweeted about it. I didn't call out the person though. I'm, too, I'm not I'm not that mean. <laughs> static um, Travis badges. And another funny thing, a couple months back, we got an Angular add-on that had forked the Ember add-on that it was based on, and so it never removed Ember add-on from its uh, keywords on the package.json. Oh, so that was great. That's was, great. Oh, that, that'd be disappointing. You'd be like, oh, this is exactly what I need, and then you go to it, and it's like for Angular. And you're like, uh... Like, <laughs> it's yeah. like, wait, I thought this was Ember Observer. Where am I? <laughs> so that, that's interesting. So that actually got filtered out of Ember Observer because that's something I do on Ember Observer that Ember add-ons doesn't do is that I filter out add-ons that are just completely not doing anything. Uh, mm. there's, so there's a lot of fulmeries and a lot of completely empty add-ons that people push and people push really weird, uh, probably shouldn't be public, like internal code to their companies and I find it and I'm like oh let me just not put this on the site because it's not useful for somebody to find right oh wow I didn't realize there was that much I know you, I knew you curated it but I didn't realize there's that much kind of attention paid to uh to, to filtering out that kind of stuff I figure I have to look at each of them anyway I might as well uh make that judgment as well it's right. not hard because you can tell when it's just an empty add-on pretty quickly yeah yeah that's that's funny. So that's gonna make me think twice about publishing my like my like throwaway add-ons. Like, don't publish them. I know Katie's gonna look at this and give me a bad score. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm not discouraging people from publishing. No, no, no. I, I yeah, no. Uh, so one one trick to getting around if you don't want to score, uh, just put that it's a work in progress in the README, and then I just mark ah. it as work in progress. Um, okay. And I don't look too closely. Right. Wonderful. I will. I will remember that. I've been doing a <laughs> instead of a whip. I've been doing a proof of concept a lot for for things like that for just like random <laughs> things i'm just like this is a proof of concept and it basically means i'm not going to maintain this <laughs> it's, it's well, proof, <laughs> those are interesting though so like work in progress where i don't know what that add-on is and i can't and there's not much there and they just say work in progress and they're figuring out what they're going to actually build but the proofs of concept are really interesting those are some of the most interesting add-ons i found um and i think i have a an experiments category where i've put Ooh. some of those that's cool um, a lot of cool things there. So we talked a lot about, uh, you know, your, your philosophy of testing, um, and uh, you wrote something called Ember Try. Uh, can you tell us what that does and, and why you decided to write it? Uh, Ember Try lets you test. Uh, it's an Ember add-on that lets you test, run your tests, or really any command, with different sets of Bower dependencies. Um, and I wrote about it, I wrote it because I had talked uh, about it with Robert Jackson and Edward Faulkner at EmberConf after they had tweeted looking for somebody to, interested in implementing something similar to that. 
Um, and then so I went ahead and built it. Ba I based it a lot on a Ruby gem called appraisals. So different sets of dependencies, not just varying Ember version, because I realized that you're going to also need to vary uh, Ember data version and potentially other add-ons that you're using as uh, other JavaScript libraries that you're using as well. Uh, it can't currently uh, modify NPM uh, versions or NPM dependencies uh, between test runs, but I've been working on adding that pretty recently, and I'm hopeful. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a challenging uh, endeavor I I suspect with uh, npm's uh, issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, it's definitely a lot slower than varying Bower uh, dependencies, but with Ember CLI, I think is their their goal is to eventually eliminate Bower as a dependency manager in Ember CLI. So we'll definitely need the ability to uh, vary npm dependencies in order to keep testing against different Ember versions. So, so are there any plans to test against different versions of Ember CLI for things like maybe an add-on author? Um, so that's a lot harder. I started thinking about that originally when I first built it and I wanted to do it. And then I just, I punted on it along with all the other hard problems. Um, so I've thought about it. And after there's NPM support, you could in theory make Ember try not an Ember add-on and then it would I think it would have to generate a different application for each version of Ember CLI you wanted to try uh, test and then also use your add-on in that uh, in that generated application and that's because the blueprints vary between different Ember CLI versions so just changing Ember CLI version in your add-on wouldn't necessarily be enough to make it uh, as it was or as it would be with that Ember CLI version right so you'd need some kind of like like recipe for creating a dummy app and then changes to make to it in order to run yeah. for each version. And in the Rails world, I know they, they've sometimes, some people have committed different uh, dummy apps generated with different versions. Um, and that I suppose that's maybe a possibility is uh, actually saving those in your repo, different uh, Ember, Ember new generated applications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. Definitely sounds like a hard problem, and and obviously first thing is tackling the npm you know yes. module. So uh, I guess that'll come first. <laughs> definitely. That's that's really interesting. I've actually not I not thought about the blueprint problem. I was just like, oh yeah, just change the thing, and then the oh wait, this is a really complicated problem. I, my brain hurts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are the personal projects that are consuming most of your time at the moment? Uh, I wish I could say a personal project was consuming most of my time, but mostly it's just been life. Uh, it's that, especially the holiday time of year. Uh, there's so much other uh, other things that my free time is very limited for projects. So mostly of my projects, I've been working on Ember Try and Ember Observer. I really want to get the Ember Try NPM support done. Uh, there was a PR for it a few months back by somebody else, but it's kind of been a little neglected. And then I started this big refactoring of it uh, that I've been doing in 15 minute increments, I swear, since September. It's been a little <laughs> ridiculous. Um, for Ember Observer, my recent work has been to make it uh, more contribution friendly uh, because there's a lot of cool stuff that could be done in Ember Observer without um, any changes to the back end of it. Uh, but there's not a lot of, uh, it's not very idiomatic Ember 2 at the moment, and it's a little uh, underdocumented. And uh, my favorite project at the moment, but I never get to work on it, I started it in June, uh, is a, a different HTML reporter for QUnit. 
that has the uh, isolates the Ember app in a iframe so that the app styles and QUnit styles don't mix. Um, and it uh, has a little bit better UX than the default reporter. It lets you move where the app is. That can the app can be on the right, the left, the bottom, the top. The test uh, test reporting is a little bit prettier. Uh, there's a play button. There's a lot of uh, little nice nice UI things, and it's mostly just been a spike. And I would love to finish that before 2016 begins. Yeah, I, I really love awesome. this idea. Uh, I I needed this in, in an app that we were doing where uh, it was a, it was a Rails app with a little portion that was Ember, and I really wanted something where I could see all the styles because it was a, it was like an animation heavy um, section, and I was watching the acceptance test go by, and it was all just so nasty with with just no CSS. Um, I, yeah, I can't wait for something like this to come out. Yeah. So I, I kid you not, I just started trying to do something similar to this in 2013. <laughs> um, and it's never really worked out, especially as Ember's testing and Ember's environment has evolved. So the, then Ember CLI came a thing and then there's been a lot of, uh, iteration over time to getting there. Um, uh, and I, first I was trying to make it a generic thing that would work for any QUnit and I've given up on that. It's written in Ember, and for first pass, we'll just be only for Ember apps. Right. So then, in, in that case, uh, has the have the changes with the visit API have that uh, kind of helped you a little bit um, now that you can kind of render an Ember app um, and kind of control more the the spin up of the application and what the root element is. So I'm actually not up to date on any of those changes. I have no clue. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're still very beta. Um, they're they're related to, to Fastboot, but they also have implications for for things like this, trying to render in an iframe. Interesting. Yeah, so one early version, I think the PR might still be open on Ember QNIT or uh, Ember test, one of those uh, add-ons, there's many add-on layers in the testing uh, part of Ember, uh, was to render the Ember app into an iframe. And it worked for almost all apps, except for apps that also had iframes in them themselves. Um, so this this was one where it just set the root element of the uh, the Ember app to that iframe. Uh, in this new project, I have it so that it's just a separate. Uh, basically, you build something s- separate with a different HTML file with broccoli, and that's the source of the iframe, and that seems to work pretty well. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful. Uh, Michelle and I are only contract to the eleventh, so after that, I'm hoping to spend most of my time on my random projects. So what can the Ember community learn from other open source communities like Ruby's community or, or, the, or the Rails community? Um, so I would say I'm not involved in the Ruby community so much as a consumer of it. Um, and I think Ember has already been influenced a lot by the Ruby community. A lot of uh, the same like niceness, I would call. It's kind of a weird way to put it, but Ruby community is kind of known for being nice. Um, <laughs> but I'd love to see testing uh, become as uh, as strong of a principle in the Ember community as it is in the Ruby community. You rarely find uh, a Ruby developer that won't uh, isn't kind of dogmatic about tests, and I think that'd be interesting in the Ember world. I think a lot more Ember apps go untested because maybe a little bit of a stigma of JavaScript applications. A lot of people still don't consider Java, JavaScript applications real code, and so they don't think that it needs to be tested, but it's really part of your app. It's a very important part, and it should be tested. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've had I've had a lot of conversations recently about like just trying to defend like actually doing my testing in JavaScript, and it's it, sometimes it's challenging, and I'm like, why are you testing this in Capybara? Like, you could just use QUnit, and it would be faster, and it would be using JavaScript, so... No, no wait for Ajax calls. Yeah. 
I fight that a lot. A lot of times people want to duplicate their uh, ember tests in capybara. And I do agree, agree exactly what you said. It's like just silly. It's just a waste of time and two places to change things instead of one when something does break or changes. So what do you think the kind of guiding principles behind Ember's community, like what, what do you think the focal point of the Ember community is right now? Just, you know, out of curiosity. The focal point of the Ember community? Um, so I would say the community itself. Uh, it seems like it's a very active community. This might be because I'm kind of insulated in it, but there's so many different efforts. There's this podcast. Uh, there's other podcasts, which is amazing for a community that seems like it's relatively small. Uh, there's Ember Watch. There's all these different community efforts that really impress me um, that are beyond the core team, and we're always grateful for the core team's work. But there's so many people doing so much work in Ember that isn't just code, and I think it really makes it a very enjoyable community to be in. makes me look forward to going to EmberConf and seeing all of the people I've met over the last few years. Thanks for listening to Ember Weekend. If you'd like to follow along, visit us at emberweekend.com. Or you can find us at Ember Weekend, all one word, on Twitter, or subscribe via RSS. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson. I'm Katie Yengler. And we'll see you next weekend. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Thanks for having me. That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, Katie, um, it is a long-standing tradition, long-standing as of like this podcast anyways, uh, that our guests get to name the episode. Do you have anything in mind? Uh, how about update your package.json? <laughs> I feel like there's a story here. I feel like there's some uh, some negligent package JSONs out there. Um, there are many. Um, so on Ember Observer, when I go through add-ons, if there's no repo URL in the package.json, I have to go hunting for that repo. And if I can't find the repo, the add-on just gets marked as work in progress because I can't look at anything about it. I don't even know what it's, what it does. Um, there's also a lot of delinquent descriptions. So descriptions that just say this is an Ember add-on and rather describe what they are. <laughs> and when people update their add-ons to new Ember CLIs, they tend to overwrite those values as well. So they get lost in the future. And so if your package.json isn't updated, you won't have any of those values on Ember Observer for your <laughs> add-on. And so people will have a hard time using or deciding to use your add-on. Awesome. Awesome. Great title. That is yeah. so good. Some, some good advice right in the title. <laughs>